0: Somebody walked up to you and said, are you so blind that you can't see this thing? Or somebody else walked up to you later and said, do you even hear what I'm saying to you? Do you even listen? Are you deaf? Uh, We would tend to get a little defensive if that was somebody's tone toward us, right? If somebody kept reminding us of things that we had done in the past, For the same reason, we would tend to be a little bit defensive. And yet, in this passage, God basically says to the people of Israel, In your idolatry and your foolishness, you have been blind and deaf. Before I redeemed you, here are the ways that you sinned over and over again stubbornly. And yet, I have redeemed you and I will help you. So last week we looked at Isaiah, or the last time we looked at Isaiah, rather two weeks ago, we saw from chapters 40 to 42 that we should glorify the true God because idols are nothing. And so we continue in this section of Isaiah 40 through 48, uh, the middle part now. And I think in this section we see this, God redeems you to witness against your former idols. God redeems you to witness against your former idols. We see here in chapter 42, which we didn't read, but continuing from where we left off previously. In chapter 42, uh, God redeems those who are spiritually blind and deaf. We start out here, I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now like a woman in labor, I will groan, I will gasp and and pant. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and wither all their vegetation. I will make the rivers into coastlands and dry up the ponds. I will lead the blind by a way they do not know. In paths they do not know, I will guide them. I will make darkness into light before them and rugged places into plains. These are the things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. They will be turned back and be put utterly to shame, who trust in idols, who say to molten images, You are our gods. So the first part of God redeeming the spiritually blind and deaf is that He rises in might on behalf of His people. He waited. For a long time He waited. Verse 14, but it says, Now He will arise. He waited, but now He will labor. Like a a woman who's giving birth to a child, the time has come for what is going to be accomplished to be accomplished. And then there's this idea that God is going to bend creation itself to His will to gather His people as He guides them. Laying waste the mountains and hills and, and withering their vegetation, making rivers into coastlands, drying up the ponds, basically making a path through what was a river or a pond or a sea for his people to be gathered, leading those who were blind with light, leading those who needed help, giving them the help that they need. And in contrast, he says, the end verse 17, those who continue and persist in idolatry will be put to shame. So God rises in might for his people as he redeems the spiritually blind and deaf. But God also calls His people from their miserable state as He redeems the spiritually blind and deaf. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or so deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is so blind as that he is that peace with me, or so blind is the servant of the Lord? You've seen many things, but you don't observe them. Your ears are open, but none hears. The Lord was pleased for His righteousness' sake to make the law great and glorious, but this is a people plundered and despoiled, all of them trapped in caves, hidden away in prisons. They have become a prey with none to deliver them and a spoil with none to say, give them back. So he's calling to them and saying, you who are deaf, hear! You who are blind, see! And then he speaks ironically, "Who so deaf and blind is my servant, my messenger, whom I've sent? You are supposed to have been the light to the nations! and you saw My glory, you saw the miracles as I led you through the Red Sea, and as I delivered you from Pharaoh's armies, and I gave you victory over the people of Canaan, and then you worshipped those same gods of the Canaanites, and you became as blind and deaf as them. God made His law great and glorious. Here's Here's the way. Walk in it. But you, you're a people who are plundered and trapped and hidden and prey and spoil because of your idolatry. So God calls His people as He redeems them out of this miserable state of decay and captivity and all of these things that they quite honestly put themselves in because they rejected God's law, which is great and glorious, and went their own way. And then the last little section here of chapter 42, God vindicates His former judgment against His people. So He redeems spiritually blind and deaf as He rises in might and calls them from their miserable state. But He also says, but I was right to have put you in that state of oppression and judgment. Verse 23, Who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? Pay attention. Verse 24, Who gave up Jacob for spoil and Israel to plunderers? why are you in this state? Because of God. Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, and in whose ways they were not willing to walk, and whose law they did not obey? Israel, why are you in captivity? Because you sinned against your God. Now, when we think about sin, we want to make excuses for it. It was a mistake. Everybody does it. It's not a big deal. Nobody's perfect. But in this passage, God calls the people of Israel to clearly acknowledge the reason you are miserable and exiled and driven out of your homes is because God gave you his law and you said, no, we're going to worship idols instead. And this brings up an uncomfortable truth. You and I must acknowledge our sin or God will not forgive it. Now, what I want to be clear with this is God has this seemingly infinite capacity to forgive sin, a perfectly sufficient sacrifice in the person of Jesus Christ. But if you and I refuse to acknowledge that we are sinners, that has no benefit to us. If we say, I'm a pretty good person, and and I can go my own way, and life will pretty much be okay most of the time, and I don't really need God. God's mercy and forgiveness and grace are not available to us because, as we've seen all throughout the book of Isaiah, God humbles the proud and exalts the humbled. God gives mercy to those who are aware that they need mercy and grace to those who ask for His grace and to those who stubbornly persist in their idolatry. God, for long stretches of time, lets them go their own way as we see with the people of Israel. And so if we are going to take advantage and receive the blessing and benefit of God's amazing grace, we have to humble ourselves to the point of being willing to ask for it. And part of asking for God's grace is acknowledging that we're sinners. Not sinners like we make mistakes here and there like everybody else does, but sinners as in God has said this is the right way and we've said no, I'm going to do this instead. God has said, worship me, and we've said, no, I'm going to worship myself, or something I've made, or something people can give me. Until we acknowledge that kind of sin, we cannot receive God's grace in the way that we need it. And so the people of Israel were broken and cast out and exiled and had to come to a point when this question is asked, who gave you up to captivity? God did. Why did it happen? Because of sin. Why did that judgment persist? Verse 25, So he poured out on him the heat of anger and the fierceness of battle, and it set him aflame all around, yet he did not recognize it, and it burned him, but he paid no attention. Part of the reason that the captivity of the Israelites is so long is because they've been stubbornly persisting in their idolatry for so long that even when God started to bring judgment to them, waves of conquest and famine and all of these things, they didn't pay attention to it at first. They kept thinking, Ah, this is a problem, but we can figure it out. Yeah, it's this is not great, but, but we can make it through. And it wasn't until God completely breaks their power militarily and takes away all their treasure and carries many of them away out of the land. It wasn't really until that point that they realized, we can't fix this. We can't make this better. We can't ignore it any longer. And so that's part of why God continued to pour out this judgment until they came to a place of repentance. So we see it in the second half here of Isaiah 42 that God redeems spiritually blind and deaf people. But he does this so that they might witness for their creator God. And we see this in chapter 43. We see, first of all, God redeems his people. This is the first part of what Bob read for us. Um, Notice the names of God in verse 1. The Lord, your Creator, He who formed you. Verse 3, the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And then in verse uh, 12, I am the Lord and I am God. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Verse 15, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. And he repeats these names and other ones as well as he comes down into chapter 44. God is their God. God is the one who made and redeems his people in verse 1. The Lord, your creator, he who formed you, I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. We don't always acknowledge the reality of belonging to God in the way that's described in verse 1. I was talking with someone recently about Ephesians one one, and the same is true for a lot of Paul's letters. He starts out and he identifies himself as an apostle, but an apostle of Jesus Christ. And, you know, sometimes we call ourselves Christians, right? But we don't necessarily always want to be closely associated with the name of Christ, the name of God. And yet here, God holds this out as a good thing. I have called you by name, you are mine, you belong to me, you are my people. And I'm not saying that we're the people of Israel, but I'm saying the parallel is this. As God identified the people of Israel as His own, God has identified the church as His own, and we ought to, in response, acknowledge that we are belong to Him and with Him and are associated with Him. God is with His people to protect them, verse 2, through waters, through rivers, Um, Fire and flood are images of the disaster that God's people face. Sometimes they're literal, actual things. Sometimes they're reminders of things, like them actually going through the Red Sea, or there being fire that was coming to um, uh, uh, attack them. But more often than not, they are pictures of the difficulties that God is going to bring them through. Now... When you think about walking through a flood, I don't mean like a creek that's like six inches deep, I mean a flood, right? So when my great-grandfather was down in Georgia in 94, there was a dam burst upriver from where he was, and there ended up being six feet of water flooding into his house. Now when he was leaving, it was up to the floorboards on his truck, and he was having to drive through that. You get out and try to, try to walk through that amount of water when it's rushing down, when a dam is broken, that's one kind of flood, right? But there are floods that are much worse than that when tsunamis hit the coastline and it's just a wall of water. And yet God is saying in the midst of a flood, I am with you and I will protect you and I will help you. We start to see the picture of what he's talking about. If you think about a campfire, you're like, a campfire, okay, no big deal. It's contained, it's in the little ring, or even a bonfire, if people are paying attention, it can also be contained, but we're not really talking about that sort of a picture, we're talking more like one of the forest fires that you see out west. You can't safely walk through it, right? But this is saying, with God's help and protection, Israel, from the fires and floods of life, I am with you, I will protect you, I will help you. I have redeemed you because I care for you. Verse 3, I'm the Lord your God, your Savior. I've given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in your place. Now, in what sense has God given Egypt as their ransom? It's not, um, how do I put it? It's not a saving kind of thing in the sense that I think if we jump too quickly to the New Testament, we might look at it and say, well, he's saying, well, Egyptians are going to die in place of Israelites, and so that somehow accomplishes salvation. That's not really the picture here, but it's getting close to the picture, which is God put the people of Israel under captivity for a time under the nation of Babylon. And I think he's using this as a picture, I'm going to put the people of Egypt under captivity, in your place and I'm going to deliver you from the captivity that you were experiencing. I think that's kind of the picture that we're getting at here. What is his reason for doing it? Because you're precious in my sight, you're honored and I love you, I will put others in your place in exchange for your life. Uh, God's going to even gather them from the ends of the earth. From the east, from the west, from the north, from the south, from afar, from the ends of the earth. Verses 5 and 6. And I think there's a picture in verse 7, everyone who's called by my name, whom I've created for my glory, whom I've formed, whom I have made. I think there's a glimpse here, based on what we've seen so far in Isaiah, that this doesn't just include captive Israel that's being restored to follow after God and to belong to him as his people, but others as well. Uh, but even if you don't agree with that, it's very clear that God's going to gather his people, Israel, back from where they have been scattered. Building on this idea that God has redeemed his people is the sense that God calls Israel to be a witness about him. Why does God redeem his people? To be a witness about him. All nations will be gathered, verses 8 and 9. And there's this idea in the end of verse 9, let them present their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is true. And God says, the nations will present their witnesses, but they have no case standing before me. But you will be my witnesses about the fact that I am God and the great ways in which I've delivered you and the things that are true about me. What are the things that Israel is going to witness? Verse 10. You may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed and there will be none after me. What are they supposed to know? That God is God. And that God alone is God. There is no other God. All of these false gods they worshipped, they were not really gods. Were they, did they exist? I mean, there were demons that actually existed that sometimes they were worshipping. But are they God in the way that God is? No. God alone is God. There was no God before, there will be none after. God alone is Savior. Verse 11, I am the Lord and there is no Savior besides me. You turn to idols to help you and they didn't help you? That's because I'm the one who saves, not them. God alone helps his people. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. There was no strange God among you. Look back to the times when you actually had help and deliverance and strength. It's when you were following after me. Not the times when you were worshiping idols. Not the times when you were half-heartedly going your own way and not coming after me and following me. But in the times when you actually had help, it's because I was your God and I was there and I delivered you. And then finally, God alone is sovereign. From eternity I am He. There is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it? This is something that quite frankly is terrifying if we don't have a right concept of what God's character is like. If God says, I am God and there's nothing you can do about it and you can't stop me, and we think that God is capricious and evil and wicked, we're in trouble. But if we see that God is a God who cares for His people, who keeps His promises to His people who loves His people, then this brings an absolute sense of confidence that if God sovereignly carries out His purpose and nothing can ultimately thwart or interrupt or stop God's plan from happening, and He carries it out for the good of His people on behalf of His people, then that quite honestly should give us a great amount of rejoicing and thanksgiving. So God has redeemed His people. He calls Israel to be a witness about Him, therefore. And then He rescues them from Babylon to bring out a people who will praise him as they witness of him. And so this is looking all the way to decades down the road, long after Isaiah is gone, when the people of Israel, of Judah specifically, are carried into captivity to Babylon, and yet God's going to deliver them from there. Because he's their redeemer, the Holy One, he's going to gather them from that place. I will bring them down as fugitives, the Chaldeans into the ships, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King, verses 14 and 15. And then he reminds them of what he had done in the past. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse, the army and the mighty man, to lie down together, not rise again, quenched and extinguished like a wick. God parted the Red Sea and destroyed Pharaoh's army. So if God did that in the past, they can be confident God's going to deliver them from Babylon as well. Therefore, Israel is not to worry about the past, but to wait for God's glory to be revealed. Don't call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. Going back to that imagery of them being taken from Egypt into the promised land, God made a way for them through the desert and God's going to do it again. God's going to flatten mountains and bring up valleys and make water for them to drink and dry up rivers so that they can cross. God will do whatever is necessary to reshape and reform the earth to get his people home. The end result, verse 21, is that God's people are going to praise Him as He always meant them to do. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. There's a sense, I think, we look at this and we say, is that right for God to do? Does God actually deserve praise? But if God is God, no one else deserves praise. And so God's people ought to praise Him alone. And so if God said, don't praise me, praise someone else in some sort of false humility it would be contrary to the fact that he alone is God. And so we must praise God, and God has designed all things for his own praise, and that's not selfishness or pride or any of those sorts of things, because he is God and he alone deserves it. And so even though Israel has strayed and gone their way over and over and over again, God redeems them and makes a way for them and brings them back so that the end result of it is this, that they will praise him that he alone is God. God reminds Israel once again of their sin that leads to judgment. And that's what I was saying at the beginning. When people bring up things that we've done in the past that aren't good, we don't really like that. Why does God keep doing it throughout this passage? Because He's showing Israel the greatness of His redemption, how far they had fallen, how miserable they were, so that as they see how God helps them and delivers them and redeems them, they would rejoice all the more for God's amazing work and kindness to them. So He reminds them of the sin that led to their judgment. In the past, Israel did not praise or sacrifice. You have not called on me, Jacob, but you have become weary of me. Verse 22 of 43. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money, nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. God said, I didn't make this hard for you. It was a lot, but I didn't make it hard for you. But you still didn't do it. You didn't bring the offerings you were supposed to. You didn't bring the tithes that you were supposed to. Instead, what you brought me was sin and iniquity and polluted things that I did not want. Yet God dealt with their sin. Verse 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God said to the Israelites, Here's what I expect of you and they said, nope, we're going to sin. God says, I acknowledge that you have sinned, and it's not at all what you should have brought before me, but I'm going to forgive it anyway, and I'm going to deliver you, and I'm going to help you. Notice, he says, I will not remember your sins, which is not the same as forgetting. Sometimes we think forgiveness is forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting, it's choosing not to remember a wrong action of someone else against that person. And so God, being God, knows all things, and doesn't forget anything, but he doesn't keep bringing it up and remembering it against his people to to harm them. The last little thing that we see here in verses 26 through 28 is they have no case before God to plead their innocence. And so again, God's judgment was right. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. State your cause that you may be proved right. Your first forefather sinned and your spokesmen have transgressed against me. So I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary and I will consign Jacob to the ban and Israel to revilement. And so from the perspective of God, the Israelites deserved all of the judgment that he brought on them for their sin. But he turns once again to hope. God redeems his people to be a witness for them. Despite their need for this dramatic rescue, and despite their idolatry that rightly led them to judgment. And so bringing all these ideas together, God redeems His people from spiritual blindness and deafness, that they might witness for their Creator God, but not just in a generic sense, but against the former idols that they worshipped. God is going to show His true power here in verses 1-8 through of chapter 44. Now listen, Jacob and Israel... Thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you, who will help you. Do not fear, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's. That one will call in the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, Belonging to the Lord, and will name Israel's name with honor. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order. From the time that I established the ancient nation, let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble, and do not be afraid. Have not I long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any other God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none." God is going to show His true power because He chose and made these people, verses 1 and 2. He's going to do it by making the desert run with water and drying up the waters to make a path, verses 3 and 4, so that they will claim God and identify with Him, verse 5, as God has claimed them, and because He alone is God who knows and fulfills His purpose. I'm the first and I'm the last. Who's like me? No one. Is there any other God besides me? I know of none. God is going to show His true power. God shows His true power in contrast to reveal again and over and over again the stupidity of idolatry. Verses 9-20. through I'm not going to read them for sake of time, but let me just summarize them for you. Here's the basic idea. You refuse to worship the true God, so you set something else up in His place. What do you set up in His place? In their case... They went to the forest, they planted trees, the trees got big, they cut the trees down. They said, all right, I'm going to make the tree look nice. Let me carve it. Now it's an idol. What do you do with the rest of the wood? You burn it in the fire. Then you bow down and worship the idol that you've made. Is there a problem with this approach to finding your own God? Yes, because if you find your God by cutting down a tree in the forest, throwing half of it away, So that you can eat food and then bowing down before it there's something innately stupid about doing that things that you have made cannot help you things that you have made should not be worshiped and yet we do and yet they did and so his point here is things like idolaters and their works are empty and pointless leading only to shame Those who fashion a graven image are futile. Their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so they will be put to shame. Hey, let me set up this idol. Hey, idol, listen to me. It's a stick. Or a log, if we're being generous. It can't help you. It can't watch you. It can't answer your prayers. It can't make your crops grow. It can't give you kids. It can't do any of the things that the people of Israel kept asking them to do. And yes, I understand that it stood for a a demon that stood behind it, and ultimately they were worshiping Satan and his demons, and they had some limited power to do certain things. But at the end of the day, they're not the true God, which is the point. And that leads to shame. The act of making idols is sheer stupidity and folly. Spending all this time carving something to look nice that in the end is something that will rot or burn and is dead and deaf and dumb and blind and cannot help you. And yet, verse 17, the rest of it he makes into a God, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. And the end result of idolatry is in verses 18 through 20. It leads to dullness and blindness to the truth. They don't know. They don't understand. He's smeared over their eyes so they can't see and their hearts so they can't comprehend. No one says this is a stupid, foolish, wicked thing that I'm doing because they've done it so long they can't even see how dumb it is. Romans 1 brings up this, incre- this, this downward spiral as well. When you refuse to acknowledge God as creator, you worship things that are created instead and you go from worshiping things that are like people to worshiping things that are like animals to basically being so blind to the basic realities of life that you can't even see how empty and pointless and and stupid your way of life is. And then that leads to all sorts of of, uh, increasingly corrupt things as far as uh, immorality and greed and all of this. So God will show His true power as He reveals the stupidity of idols and by delivering His people from the stupidity of idolatry. Verse 21, Remember these things, O Jacob, and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you, you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. Don't worship these things because you don't belong to them, you belong to me. I've wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud, your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I've redeemed you. I've dealt with this sin. Don't go back to it. Worship and serve me wholeheartedly. And returning, they will worship. Verse 23, Shout, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel He shows forth His glory. I've redeemed you from that. You belong to me. Don't go back there. Come here. Worship me. All of creation does it. You ought to be doing it too. And then these reminders at the end of chapter 44 that God alone is the true God. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the one who formed you from the womb. I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. God made the heavens and the earth. Hebrews says, we saw that by the plan of God, the heavens and the earth were formed. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the theme of scripture. God is the true God because he's the creator God. God is also the true God because he causes the pride of man to fail. Verse 25, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back, turning their knowledge into foolishness. God is the true God because he keeps his word to establish his chosen people confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers, it is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up her ruins again. He makes a path for them where there was none. It is I who say to the depth of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is God who brings his people home. It is I who said, verse 28, of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. And he will perform all of my desire. He declares of Jerusalem, she shall be built. Of the temple, your foundation will be laid. So to sum it all up, what is the point of these three chapters? Idolatry is stupid, you need to be delivered from it. If you belong to God, he will deliver you out of that idolatry. The right response is to praise God for his redemption and to witness of his power against your former idols. But here's the problem. We keep running back to a lot of those same idols over and over again. Entertainment and ambition and fear of man and pride and lust and greed and all of these things that call back to us and we say, yes, let me go worship these sticks and stones again. God says, I'm the creator, I've made the heavens and the earth I have helped you and I will help you and I can reshape the very form of the earth to get you from where you are to where I want you to be. Why are you going back to these things that can't help you? The New Testament points this out as well. Uh, Peter says you've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ from your empty and futile former way of life passed down to you as traditions from your forefathers. These things have a strong hold on us, but they shouldn't. We forget how they've betrayed us before. Worship me and you'll be happy. You happy when you're living in sin? Not for very long. Are you happy when you're going your own way? Not for very long. We can lie to ourselves and think we're happy, but really we confuse the noise and chaos of life around us with happiness being busy is not being happy being entertained is not being happy knowing god and having a relationship with him despite all of these things is what brings us true and lasting joy and happiness but we keep coming back here life is hard so i'm gonna watch a movie life is hard so i'm gonna listen to some music life is hard so i'm gonna spend time with my friends life is hard So I'm going to try to ignore it with drinking or doing drugs or eating ice cream or whatever else we think is going to help us drown out the brokenness of the world. And when life is good, why is it good? Because look at all the things that I did. Why is it good? Because these idols that I've worshipped have helped me out a little bit. And God says, no. Worshipping idols is stupid. Don't do it. Don't go back to it. You know what the two of the most disgusting and fascinating pictures of idolatry that are that you find in the Bible? The farm animal that goes back and wallows in its manure again right after it's had a bath, the pig or the cow or whatever. And then the dog that vomits and then goes and eats it again. So the next time that you are tempted to go back to some sin that you felt like God has delivered you from, ask yourself, do I want to be a dog eating recycled vomit? Do I want to be a pig wallowing in the manure? And ultimately, those two pictures aren't enough to keep us from sin, because we can rationalize it away in our minds. And so quite honestly, maybe those aren't the places that we should turn, although they're appropriate pictures, maybe the place that we need to turn is... Why am I worshipping a stick when I can worship the Creator? Why am I worshipping a car when I can worship the God who stretched out the stars? Why am I worshipping my own accomplishments when they are as nothing compared to the God who holds the waters of the world in His hand? Those are really probably the questions that we should be asking ourselves. And if you have made a profession of faith to turn from this to God, to turn away from idols, to serve God. We ought to be burning our bridges to running back here. Whatever that looks like. You struggle with lust, at least for a while, throw out your smartphone and your TV. You struggle with anger, Drive the long way home if you have to for a while. You struggle with greed? Unsubscribe from all those emails and magazines and everything else that keep coming in and saying, buy this, buy this, buy this, and you'll be happy. Whatever the idol or idols are that you struggle with, if you belong to God, we have a responsibility like Hezekiah and the people of Israel to smash them so we can't go back and keep worshiping them. And that takes a lot of different forms. And even that is not ultimately a guarantee or a safeguard because our hearts are prone to going and building new ones, right? Go cut down another tree, make a new idol, right? So ultimately, the only thing that's going to save us from idolatry is being so enraptured with the vision of God and His greatness that we don't want to keep going back to that. But there's also a time and a place for making it harder to keep treading our path back to where we were don't go back. God is willing to take everything from you until you turn away from your idols if you belong to him. He did this with the people of Israel. He took away their homes. He took away their freedom. He took away their riches. He took away their military power. He took away everything from them to break in them the power of idolatry. And if God did that with the whole nation of Israel, why do we think that he wouldn't do it with us? If God's goal is Ephesians 2.10, we're created in Christ Jesus as his workmanship to do good works that we would walk in them, why do we think that God's not going to do whatever it takes to get that goal accomplished? I don't say that to say that God's a vindictive God. I'm just saying that he prioritizes your holiness and your praising him above all of the things that you think of as goals for your life. So be devoted to God. Be amazed by who He is. Be a witness for Him against the idols that used to rule your heart and life. This is why God saves you. God redeems you to witness against your former idols. So let's do that this week. Let's pray. Dear God, like the old hymn says, it um, Our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. Take them and seal them for your courts above because we need your grace to keep us from going back to the things that we have loved so much in our life that are things that you hate, that you say are abominations in your sight. Lord, help us to worship you and not anything or anyone else. Help us to serve you and be excited about serving you instead of finding our joy and our love in things and people around us. That doesn't mean that we don't have anything, and it doesn't mean that we don't also love people, but those things must pale in comparison to our devotion to you and, and service to you. Lord, if there's anybody here today who doesn't know you as God, I pray that you would help whoever that is to turn from idols to you to serve you and to wait for Jesus to come back. Because that's the reason that you made us. That's the calling that fills the emptiness and the void in our souls that all of us experience. The more that we're honest and the older that we get, apart from you, we have nothing of what we need. And in you, you freely give us all things. And so, Lord, may we turn to you and serve you and follow you. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.